today on Ag News Daily. How can we solve some of these problems? Because we don't want to be the issue that's causing these food safety pieces in the end. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Delaney Howell, one of the hosts for the Ag News Daily Podcast, and I'm flying solo today. Mike is off, I don't know, traveling somewhere today. I can't keep track. I was also on the road today. I went to a conference in Council Bluffs, Iowa, that was focused on, well, today was very much focused on farmer safety and um, farmer complacency in the workplace going to be bringing you an interview tomorrow actually from that conference with Leon Sheets who has served on Iowa Port, Iowa's pork producer board as a president. He was the 2017 pig farmer of the year so he also has an accident or a work-related accident that happened to him a couple of years ago so he's going to share that story and more tomorrow so do stay tuned for that. For today's interview, we're going to be getting an update from our field reporter, Bruce Gorder, who runs into or ran into associate professor at Nebraska, who runs the Beef Quality Assurance Program, and that's Rob Eric. But in the news today, we've got quite a bit going on I want to make sure we get to first. Let's start here by kicking it off, discussing a little bit about the Farm Bill and a few tentative details we now think we know um, AgriPulse has reported today that we could see an official text as early as tomorrow or Friday. Those final estimates and the tentative agreement is still pending the final cost estimates from the CBO or the Congressional Budget Office, as I mentioned yesterday. But it looks like uh, hopefully a text tomorrow, if not early next week. There are a couple of things I want to point out that we don't know yet 100% for sure, waiting to see the final text, but I know if Mike were here, he'd go off on his soapbox because one of the issues or one of the things that we're waiting to see is what they do with the CRP or the Conservation Reserve Program. Sources are telling AgriPulse that CRP ground, which is currently sitting at 24 million, will be increased up to 27 million acres and paid for by capping payments relative to local rental rates, but we don't yet know what the cap will be. Farmers who lose payments on unplanted base acres are expected to qualify for conservation incentives to keep the land and grass, but still missing that detail 100% for sure, too. However, I do have one update for us here when we look at CRP ground for 2019. When the farm bill expired on September 30th of this year, NRCS lost its authority to extend and renew conservation programs or conservation stewardship programs, which is um, part of the CRP program itself. And many of those will expire at the end of this year. However, we did see some news come out this week. The USDA issued that the National Natural Resources Conservation Service, or NRCS, will allow producers with existing CSP contracts to be given the opportunity to renew those contracts in 2019, even though they have technically expired with the Farm Bill. I'm guessing because they knew the Farm Bill was going to get passed at some time or didn't want those acres to just lay fallow or, you know, get turned into production ground or whatever. So that means that the 4,000 producers who signed up for CSP in 2014 would need to have their contracts signed and finalized new contracts for 2019 signed and finalized by December 31st of this year so I know that affects probably quite a few of our listeners 
So definitely get into your FSA office if that is something that you are interested in doing for the coming 2019 year. However, I do want to put one other final disclaimer in. All of these efforts could be undercut if the Farm Bill eliminates CSP entirely or if CSP is not given renewed authority in a possible Farm Bill extension, but I think that that's unlikely um, by the way it sounds here with acres increasing in CRP ground in total. So stay tuned. That's all I can really say about that. We should have some more answers hopefully tomorrow, if not early next week. Also going on this weekend, of course, as we know, and we've been talking about here on the podcast a lot, is the G20 Summit coming up in Buenos Aires, Argentina, starting tomorrow. And President Trump is supposed to join President Nieto and Justin Trudeau to sign the U.S. MCA agreement. But a couple of people, including former U.S. Trade Representative and Ohio Senator Rob Portman, it's likely... Well, I shouldn't say it's likely, but it's possible that President Nieto will refuse to sign this deal tomorrow if the U.S. does not first lift its steel and aluminum tariffs on the country. Portman says that U.S. and Mexican negotiators have been scrambling to reach an agreement on the Section 232 tariffs, including the aluminum and steel tariffs, but Mexican officials are still fighting it and are putting pressure on President Trump to lift those tariffs, which were put in place in August. And of course, we still don't know what's on the docket or what's going to happen with the Class 7 and dairy industry or dairy side of the trade agreement. So we will also keep you posted. Probably not going to have anything, any definitive answers until Monday, I'm guessing, since we'll probably cut the podcast before um, these, uh, these meetings take place tomorrow. Also on the trade floor this week, we uh, know the EU is in discussions or in on route to discussions with the U.S. for trade. And the EU's top diplomat to the U.S., David O'Sullivan, offered again, or I guess stressed again just yesterday, that the EU is refusing to talk or address agricultural issues during free trade agreement talks. He said the reasoning behind this is the two sides could quickly wrap up a deal that also ends current trade tensions and tariffs if agriculture isn't included. He said if agriculture is included in these talks, they could likely and would likely go on for years. So he said he's confident that the EU and Europeans can be convinced to acquiesce, but not looking promising that we're going to see agriculture in the first round here at least of a trade agreement a free trade agreement with the EU but you know my thought is if we at least have some sort of free trade agreement with the EU in place now maybe on down the road they're going to be willing to negotiate willing to put some sort of trade agreement in place for agricultural products and if nothing else at least if we're trading other commodities or other manufactured goods or services with the EU Hopefully they'll turn to the U.S. for more of those goods and foods that they need, like our high-quality protein, such as uh, beef and pork. So, I don't know. Maybe that's a too optimistic of a view to look at it right now, but that is continued to, being, continued to uh, be stressed by EU trade officials. Got an interesting update here on the Syngenta Biotech lawsuit, which we, uh, oh man, it's been months now since we talked about this on the podcast. So just to give everybody a little bit of speed back up to date here, there was the lawsuit 
filed by about 7,000 Kansas corn growers against Syngenta over biotech traits that Viptira, I can't remember the number off the top of my head, um, biotech trait that was unapproved in China, but Syngenta went ahead and sold to U.S. farmers. Then there was a whole shebang about you couldn't sell that corn to China, etc., etc. Um, and so as we know, they received $503 million as the lawsuit to split amongst those approximately 7,000 farmers. And Ellen Reisman, who is an attorney judge in Washington, D.C., made basically what sh what's called, I guess, a report to the court that the Kansas group of 95 law firms should, and this isn't a done deal, I think this is just her recommendation, she recommended that these uh, 95 law firms receive half of the $503 million and be, and be awarded half of that in attorney fees. She said, you know, they went above their role. They not only took on a leadership role in federal litigation, but they also conducted and coordinated massive fact and expert discovery against both Syngenta and third parties spanning multiple countries and substantial expense. And we've also got an issuance here. Minnesota growers were also represented in part of that, and um, they were awarded $120.8 million, and Reisman recommended that the lawyers get a quarter of those fees. In Illinois, those producers were awarded $80.5 million, and she said that lawyers who representative plaintiffs on an individual basis should get about $50.3 million. The overall settlement from all of those states totaled $1.5 billion. And so just some issuance there. I think Mike and I were debating about it when it first came out of how much would the lawyers actually get of that money and how much would the, um, would the producers get. So, okay, I've got my phone right here, so I'm going to do some quick math because... I'm not good at doing math in my head. Okay, so we've got 7,000 farmers in Kansas splitting $251.5 million. All right, okay, so after some quick math here, if we've got 7,000 farmers approximately in Kansas and they're getting half of the estimated $503 million, every farmer would walk away with about $35,000, I think, if I did the math correctly. So, you know, that's not a, not a bad turnout there for those farmers. When we look at other news in the, uh, well, especially in the crop industry, we've got the Bear Ag Monsanto merger finally through the circuit here. But Bear Ag made an announcement that it's going to cut or it's planning to cut 12,000 jobs and exit its animal health business in an effort to mollify Wall Street, which apparently has punished the company in a multitude of lawsuits which came right after the $63 billion takeover of Monsanto. The company announced a number of moves, including exiting the sun care and foot care segments. And it's also going to exit now the animal health industry segments. And the company said, you know, this is a way that we're trying to, I guess, increase their profit. They've lost some $30 billion or $34.1 billion in market value since August when the California jury ruled against Roundup Ready with that lawsuit with Dwayne Johnson. So they're saying we're gonna try and we're gonna try and pull back. This is one way we're doing that and cutting jobs is a big chunk of that. However, I think a lot of those 
I shouldn't say a lot, but 10% of their workforce currently reside in Germany, so maybe we won't see quite as much of an impact in those 12,000 job cuts here in the U.S. as we would see if we were living in Germany. I think the only other piece of news I have for today before we hop over and talk to our field reporter, Bruce Gorder, is some just another update here as we kind of start to see more numbers rolling in from the USDA's MFP, or Market Facilitation Program. Wisconsin dairy farmers, we've got some numbers here about how much trade aid they are getting for their financial losses. The Wisconsin Farmers Union, the Wisconsin Farmers Union estimated that a 55-cow farm would receive a one-time payment of $725 from the program while losing as much as $48,000 this year due to low milk prices. So the dairy producers are again feeling that impact as they so often do. And dairy prices definitely have not been super pretty as of lately, well, as of quite a few years now. But we've got a great team in place over at the Zaner Group. They can help with things like this, with marketing and hedging, protecting your risk, so you don't have to rely solely on lawsuits or farmer assistance packages or subsidy money, etc. You can protect yourself by using their strategies. Give them a call today at 312-277-0050. Now, ahead of the upcoming G20 meeting, we did have the soybeans pull back just a slight bit today. But let's start with a look here at the corn market. The December corn contract finished down a quarter cent at 360 and a quarter, while the March ended unchanged on the day to end at 373 and a quarter. In the soybean pits, the January contract pulled back just three and a quarter cent at 887 and a quarter, while the March took down three and three quarters cents to end at nine dollars and a half even. In the wheat pits, the Chicago contract pulled back a penny in the December month at 496 and a half. While the deferred contract ended down three and three quarters cents at 507 and three quarters. Looking over into the livestock markets for today, red across the screen in the cattle markets, the December live cattle contract down 17 and a half cents to close at 116.60, while the February down 27 and a half cents to end at 120.27 and a half. In the feeder cattle pits, the January contract down $1.72 and a half to end at $145.97 and a half, while the March dropped $1.67 and a half to close at $143.67. In the lean hog contract, seeing some strength today, the December front month contract up 77 and a half cents to close at 58.72 and a half, while the February not limit up on the day, but did put on good gains with a $2.85 move to the upside to close at 67.35. And in our dairy class three milk producing friends, we saw the December contract put on eight cents for the day to close at 14.14, while the January up 12 cents to end at 14.43. With that, I'm gonna turn it over here to our field reporter, Bruce Gorder, who's going to be having an interview with Rob Eric from the Beef Quality Assurance Program. The Beef Quality Assurance Program ensures that U.S. consumers get the safest, most nutritious beef products in the world. The program was first talked about in the 80s when some folks in the feedlot states of Oklahoma, Texas, Kansas, Nebraska, and Iowa started questioning some of those practices. Rob Eirich directs the program in Nebraska and talks about those early days. We're getting some feedback from 
some research and data that's coming out of these packing plants uh, focused mainly on injection sites and some residue levels and, and how they sat down and they said, how can we solve some of these problems? Because we don't want to be the issue that's causing these food safety pieces in the end. We want to figure out where we can focus our energy each and every day to ensure that we're eliminating some of those type of things. And it all comes down to food safety. It, it came down to what we were putting on the consumer's dinner plate. And so that's where uh, a lot of it began in the 80s, and, and there was a strong set of veterinarians uh, throughout the, the, the Midwest, uh, mainly the feed yard states, uh, Nebraska, Oklahoma, Texas, uh, Colorado, um, Kansas, you know, some of those central states that were really seeing some of this, Iowa. And so uh, that was some of where it really started, and they really developed a program that is producer-related, and that's what this information is all about. So it started because of these uh, problems, and it was it was pretty much at the feedlot level, like you were saying, because at the feedlot level, that's where these processes were taking place. Well, that's yeah, that was where that's the last point before they go to the rail, and so these things were being found when these cattle were being harvested on the rail, and so that was the first step back. Even though we know that. Things that happen even at the cow-calf level with injection sites can still be seen in a carcass when that animal's harvested. And so those are things we, that's where it first came back to is the feed yards because that's where we, we were, that was the first step. And so, uh, it's really kind of built on that, but that's where it all started is that feed yard scenario. So uh, how many BQA programs are there? Are, are they state controlled around the country? Uh, Beef Quality Assurance, the BQA program, is a national program. It's uh, housed uh, with producer education uh, under NCBA, but uh, it's really uh, the whole program lies uh, mainly uh, with the National Beef Checkoff uh, uh, Counseling. So when you look at that, uh, that's where we, we all get together, but every state uh, pretty much in the country here in the U.S. has a director or a coordinator of the program within the state. So we have a set of national guidelines principles that the National BQA Advisory Board has, has really set down for us ever since the beginning. And we take that, and uh, even though we do have some national materials, but we take that down where we can use those within the states. And so each state kind of controls that education piece within the state itself. You talk about the education. What does that lead to? Uh, t- talk about your certification process. Who needs to be certified and how often and what does that entail? Well, the certification process is basically a, a training that uh, these individuals go to every three years. Uh, that three-year training uh, is involved in, in most states have numerous trainings around their state itself. But that training uh, really deals with daily handling uh, uh, vaccination protocols, treatment protocols, diagnosing any health risks that we might have out there, but also goes into low-stress handling or effective cattle handling. How do we use the flight zone to really manage cattle and movement and do it correctly uh, to eliminate any risk of bruising or those injection sites, you know, putting those, where should those injection sites be? They should be in the neck. We should follow the label. We should use the products that we have judiciously. And so that's kind of the process. And so they go through that training and then uh, uh, there's a test, and they have to go through a, a test process. But 
then they get certified, and then we encourage them to make sure they're implementing that, and we have a set of uh, assessments that they can really use to take back home with them and say, oh, are we doing these things, or maybe here's some places that we do need to improve. And so that's kind of the next step uh, from the certification, but uh, that's the certification is really focused on uh, cow, calf, stalker, and feed yard operations. Uh, but we also have a transportation uh, certification that is brand new that started uh, here in um, February, and that's another requirement that we're going to start seeing down the road by our packers. You talked about injections. What are you talking about when you're talking about injections? So anytime that we have to administer a vaccine or a antibiotic uh, protocol for a treatment, uh, that would be an I- injection site. Uh, if we have to put it in the muscle or underneath the skin of that animal, uh, that's kind of those injection sites that we're talking about. Anytime we stick a needle into a, a muscle tissue or any tissue, we create a scar tissue. And so that scar tissue is kind of where things can start to form. It might be an abscess of maybe uh, there was too much in inside that location, too much product that will cause a, a product abscess. Or it might be a dirty needle that caused an infection causing an abscess. Or it might just be that scar tissue that has caused that piece of product to be too tough. And even though you look at that injection site as being a very small Injection, it can actually affect the product up to three or four inches around it. And so those are things we have to think about is making sure we put that product in. We say the injection triangle is in the neck because that's our least valued product on a beef carcass. Uh, everything else has a, has a higher value. And we those are the products that are more consumed. And so we want to stay out of those products from getting any type of risk like that. And so those injection sites become pretty important for us. Let's talk about antibiotics. That's what the public is hearing a lot about. People are, are very concerned that there's antibiotics in their meat products and what it's doing to their family as they feed meat. Uh, is there a problem with antibiotics at the grocery level? All meat has to go through a very strict testing system from USDA and the FDA. And those uh, systems will test for any type of antibiotic residue in meat. We have to follow very strict guidelines when we look at administering these products. One uh, is proper dosage. We have to give it for the proper diagnosis that's on that label, but we also have what we call a withdrawal time. And that withdrawal time is the amount of time that that animal, from the time we doctored or we administer that product until we can harvest it, because that's the amount of time that that product needs to be metabolized in the system. Uh, and, and basically be used in the system. And so everything from vaccines to antibiotics or antimicrobials have some type of a withdrawal. And so we make sure that we follow those, but we also do this very judiciously. And that judicious uh, comment is we use it when it's needed to treat an animal. And that's a fairly limited number of animals as a whole that really need to be treated. And so are they temping? Do they truly have an infection or uh, illness that needs to be treated? And so we go through a big process, but the food that's on the counter, our, our consumers need to be very confident that the safety of that food is the utmost quality and priority of the whole industry and that antibiotic isn't there. 
the program overall, Rob, the Beef Quality Assurance Program nationwide and at the state level, is it working? Do you think it's really doing what it's supposed to be doing? Yeah, we do every five years. We do what we call the National Beef Quality Audit. And so they go in and they uh, – it's a a three-step procedure, but they actually look at uh, all the product, the carcasses uh, at plants. They do uh, research. They do data collection, uh, the whole process. And every five years they do that. So I'll give you an example. Injection sites was the reason that we started the program. Uh, 20 to 25% of all fed cattle showed an injection site lesion in the mid-'80s. In 2016, which was our last fed cattle audit uh, in the National Beef Quality Audit, it showed that 99.5% of the carcasses that they observed showed no injection signs outside the neck region. So that was one simple practice that we did to eliminate a risk for food safety. We've had better control of any type of a residue that we find in in meat products. Uh, We've had higher quality. In the mid-'90s or early-'90s, 49% 49% of the beef cattle carcasses or fed cattle were choice or prime. In 16, 71% of the cattle are grading choice or prime. That's big success stories for our industry. We're doing the right things. We're implementing the right things. And I think that really goes back to the commitment producers have. That's Rob Eirich. He is the director of the Beef Quality Assurance Program for Nebraska. I'm Bruce Gorder for Ag News Daily. All right. Well, a big thank you to Bruce. And don't forget to tune back in tomorrow. I'm going to have Leon Sheets on with me, and he was a really fantastic interview, so I encourage all of you to tune back in with us tomorrow. If you have suggestions for things we should be covering, people we should be interviewing, please find us on Facebook and Twitter at Ag News Daily, or you can head to the Global Ag Network's home, www.globalagnetwork.com, which is where we are now hosted as a podcast. We've still got a contact us form there that Mike and I get directly to our email inboxes, or you can still use our old contact us form on agnewsdaily.com. But folks, I'm telling you, there's a lot of great podcasters on the Global Ag Network, so I encourage you to go check out our new site. We're still putting on the finishing touches. Please let us know if you see any bugs or things that need to be fixed, because we're still working on it. But I encourage you to go check out those new podcasts, give them all a listen if you haven't done so yet, and hit subscribe in iTunes for both Ag News Daily and the other podcasters on the Global Ag Network. With that, I'm going to let everyone go. Have a great afternoon, and we'll see you back here tomorrow.